Hey guys, I'm really excited to announce we are going to be doing a giveaway. What this is going to be is a two-man, two-day guided waterfowl hunt on November 18th and 19th in Northeast Kansas with Steady Wing Outfitters. In order to be signed up for the drawing, there's four things I need you to do. You need to go on to Instagram and follow the Steady Wing Outfitters Instagram page. You have to follow the Wicked Hunting Report Instagram page. In that Wicked Hunting Report Instagram page, I'm going to be making a post about the giveaway. In that post, I need you to tag three friends in it, and then you have to subscribe to the podcast. Once you've done all four of those things, follow the two Instagram pages, subscribe to the podcast, and tag your three friends. I need you to screenshot all four of those things and send them in a message to me on the Wicked Hunting Report Instagram page. Once you've done that, I'll enter you into the drawing. Uh, the drawing will go until the last day of February. Then on March 1st, I will draw the winner. And then on March 2nd, in that episode, I will announce who the winner is. So good luck. Tell your friends. Get as many people as you can signed up. The more people you have signed up, the better options you have that one of your buddies is going to win it and invite you along. Good luck. Before we get started, I want to tell you about our sponsors. Uh, first, we have DuckSeason.com. That's D-U-K-S-Z-N.com. Uh, go on there and check it out. You can trade hunts with people from across the country. Uh, there's a good duck hunting forum on there. You can buy some merchandise. Uh, there's also the Salty Fowl line of clothing on there where 100% of the profits go to the conservation of eiders. Next, we have Steady Wing Outfitters. It's located in northeast Kansas, and they're guiding for waterfowl, turkey, and deer. Uh, follow them on Instagram and Facebook, and if you want to book a hunt, you can call Mikey Soberano. His number is 785-410-2304. Next, we have 701 Pursuit. That's Caleb and the guys making hunting and fishing videos on YouTube. Uh, you can check them out there, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all those places. They also have a website. It is the numbers 701pursuit.com. Go on there and buy some clothes, hat shirts, stuff like that. Now we've got Waylon Johnson and his guide service, uh, hunting ducks and geese down in the San Antonio, Texas area. Uh, you can find him on Facebook. It's Waylon Johnson on there. Or you can give him a call. His number is 361 Four nine four seven eight six eight. Lastly, we have Highline Retrievers uh, dog training up in Northeast Montana. You can find them on Facebook, Instagram, or TikTok. It's H I L I N E Retrievers. You can also uh, give me a call. My number is four zero six seven eight three seven zero eight three. If you have any questions on training, need any advice, any help, or if you want to set up some training in the future for your four-legged friend. Uh, thanks a lot and enjoy the show. All right, welcome to the Wicked Hunting Report. This is Garrett. Today I am back with Ryan Risher. Um, today we're going to talk about snow goose hunting. I'm going to continue on the Snow Goose 101 series that we were doing. So uh, I guess, Ryan, why don't you introduce yourself again to people that might not have heard the last podcast? Yeah, well, thanks again for having me on one of these episodes. I appreciate it. For those of you out there who didn't chime in on that one, uh, my name is Ryan Rischer. I'm the co-owner of One Tree Outfitters. Uh, we're based out of southern New Jersey in the Atlantic Flyway. Um, kind of our 
big to do is hunting greater snow geese over in the Atlantic flyway, but we also do run hunts for collectors looking to get their brand, their black ducks, um, you know, any sort of um, kind of outlier puddle duck that you know, people in the area are interested in getting, um, things of that sort. Okay. So as of right now, is that the only place that you snow goose hunt or do you get over into North Dakota yet still? No, I mean, I'm I'm usually just hunting um, New Jersey at the time. You know, um, I haven't gotten out to the Mississippi or Central Flyways in quite some time, especially since, you know, we got the business up and running a few seasons ago. That's taken up a lot of my time, especially in the spring. So kind of kind of been stuck here to my own little corridor, which, you know, it's all good. Yeah, well, that's good, too, because we had Drew and we had Chris on and both of them are like North Dakota, South Dakota, just Central Flyway. So it's good that we're going to get some opinions and views from out of that. So I guess I kind of answered the first question. I was going to ask where you guys snow goose hunt at, but you're just over there. So are you guys like strictly land hunting when it comes to snow geese or do you guys water hunt them too? Um, so back, this is probably going back, um, really before, you know, obviously the time that we got this up and running, but when you kind of look at some of the like heyday of hunting graders in the Atlantic flyway, um, aside from hunting them and what ag was around, especially down in like Delaware and Maryland, um, more so in New Jersey, a lot of the hunting that was going on was actually in like tidal marsh. So back in its heyday, um, what was going on out there was they were actually, um, they were farming salt hay, um, you know, you, you probably see it a lot on people, especially up in this area, you know, that they'll grass their sneak boxes with, they'll grass, you know, their boats that they have with. And that was, by and large, a big wintering food source for the graders that we have here. Um, and oddly enough, you know, what kind of happened, you know, I think it was back in, what, the late 70s, early 80s. At that point, you know, their population had, I think, like tripled. Um and they, for a lack of better words, kind of ate themselves out of house and home. Uh, they really um, just degraded the the salt marsh that they were wintering in, and it caused them to kind of transition their diet over to. And obviously, there was a lot of ag expansion going on, you know, during this time as well. So, you know, they were kind of transferring over to that ag diet, and they weren't using the salt marsh as much. You know, they were roosting out there. There were still birds out there you know, that kind of wintered and really just kind of stuck to that habitat. And, you know, that was kind of how I got started. And, you know, you know, my dad and his grandfather were hunting them, was out in the marsh. And, you know, Travis did a lot of that. My business partner, you know, hunted them all out out in the marsh. We did that as well. But, you know, by and large, the past, say, 8, 10, 12 years, they don't really use the marsh like they used to just because the, the food's not really out there for them. So, by and large now you know we're we're basically hunting them inland okay so i guess how big of a spread are you guys running out there for land then um it depends um you know like any other hunting situation it's really um situational there's times we're only running few dozen area a few dozen <laughs> a few hundred full bodies um you know yesterday when we were out we only ran about 1500 socks um our rigs we probably have about 5000 decoys total there's been times we've combined rigs with people to run 8 9000 decoys and we got you know 
15, 16 guys to, you know, put all that work and effort in. And it looks awesome, but, you know, doing that, it, it can be definitely, uh, it's, it's more work than play at that point. So it, it's all situational. You know, by and large, we try to get out as much as we can, but sometimes that's just not in the cards for whatever the situation is that we're hunting. Okay. So, like you said, you did full bodies and socks. Is it, do you guys run a mixture most of the time, or is it usually just like one or the other and just depending on the situation? Yeah. Um, you know, if we can, we'll usually mix, but our, you know, a lot of our full bodies downwind, obviously, where, you know, we are expecting the birds to land. Um, you know, start mixing them in kind of what we're going to be hiding. Um, but, you know, again, sometimes like we just know we're not going to be able to get into a field with the trailer or however means we're going to be able to. So, you know, being able to take in a bunch of socks where you know, everybody can grab a bag, grab two bags and we can, you know, lug some stuff in. That's kind of the situation we're being dealt with that day. Okay. So do you guys run uh, motion out there? Um, not usually. I mean, we have, we have, I don't know, half a dozen rotaries. We have some clones, uh, but they, they don't really seem to work as well. And, you know, from my perspective, like they do for birds out in the, you know, central flyway and the Mississippi flyway. Um, I don't know if it's, you know, it's purely speculation on my point or from my perspective, um, you know, there, it's just not something they're accustomed to either seeing or they're just they've been satiated by it by the time they get down here. I'm not really sure what, but, you know, I also think I think our birds, for whatever reason, they just seem a little bit cagier than birds. Out. And I don't know if it's maybe just because there's there's so much more volume out in these other flyways compared to us. I mean, I think. I forget what exactly the number that the population itself is, but, you know, we may winter maybe, I don't know, anywhere from 180 to, say, 220,000 birds. It's it's really not many when you think about it compared to other flyways. Um, and I'm just speaking for kind of our, you know, core area. You know, I'm not even including some of the refuges and other, you know, um, uh, kind of the bigger wintering grounds down like, you know, Maryland and Delaware and, you know, where they stage in Pennsylvania and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we have it, but, you know, how often do we use it? Not super often. Maybe just some of our really um, windless days just to get some motion in the decoys, but that's going to be about it, really. So I'm really, really ignorant to the uh, snow geese in your guys' area. So you guys are the wintering ground? for those snow geese yeah so our birds you know they they breed up in canada just like you know all the other snow geese do um by and large you know they're obviously just like out in the midwest they're following that snow line down and that's kind of where they're going to ultimately end up concentrating for the winter and then like you know again based on what new york you know upstate new york the finger lakes in new york are looking like like basically they need to freeze um get those birds down into like northern new jersey northeastern pa um and then there's quarries there that and some reservoirs on you know both sides of the delaware river we need those to freeze if those really aren't frozen it's you know we're kind of at the mercy of you know other weather conditions that are going to get the birds down to us um you know new jersey itself has kind of four different wintering areas you know there's one up north um, there's one, you know, flock that kind of stages around like central Jersey. Both of those are never really any sort of 
um, significant flocks um, by and large. A lot of our birds, you know, they're Delaware Bayshore birds. They're, you know, bouncing back and forth between us and, you know, um, Delaware, especially because, I mean, you know, you can see Delaware from, you know, where we are kind of by and large HQ'd out of, you know, across the bay. So it's nothing for those birds to fly that 8, 10, 12 miles across and then say another one to five, six miles inland. That's that's nothing for them on a given day. Um and, you know, we have like another little wintering flock that stages around one of the coastal refuges. And, you know, that flock's, you know, done that for the better part of, you know, 20 plus years. And, you know, hunting those birds, that's a totally different ball game. It's, you know, only a, a few thousand birds that stay there. So we we really get the bulk of them, especially, you know, because of the fact that our birds are trading with birds that are down in Delaware. Okay. See, I always just assume that your guys' birds would go down to the Carolinas or Georgia or something. So that, I mean, I didn't, I didn't ever expect them to stay up that far north. But like you said, they just, you know, fall in that snow line as far south as they have to go. Yeah, and I mean, w- what's interesting about that, you know, you bring up the Carolinas. So I mean, and, and don't get me wrong, some of our graders they do end up down there. Um, they will, you know, back into like North Carolina, you know, like Kill Devil Hill area, and then up into like. You know, Virginia, um, I know there's like a couple of refuges, you know, there in North Carolina, they get around. But what's interesting is they're actually finding out quite a bit of those birds that end up down in like the Carolinas. They're actually like um, like transient flyway birds where they're coming down the Mississippi. And then once they get to like, um, I guess, like the Great Lakes and Illinois, they actually cut across and they go from there across down into the Carolinas. It's, it's really interesting. And then. What ends up happening, like you would think they're going to follow the same way back, largely speaking, that they would the way they came down. But we're seeing that some of those birds are actually following our flyway birds back north. So it's interesting because you get into like late February, early March when it's starting to warm up and we're getting, you know, migrants out of the south. There's often quite more of these lessers getting mixed in that are birds that probably cut across the flyway that now are intermingling and commingling in our flyway that we end up shooting later in the season. You know, it's, it's cool. Cause like, you know, there's times, you know, everybody here, cause you know, blues are so uncommon, largely speaking. And you know, that's what everybody wants to get is they want to get a nice Atlantic flyway blue, but you know, you see those, and then, like, you end up actually, like, shooting a blue out of, like, the lesser snow geese population, and just seeing the size difference, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's cool how you can see the difference between them, and just the difference in the behavior of them, and, like, you know, how they're actually, like, I guess, socially involved in, you know, the flocks that we hunt. I mean, it's it's a little nuanced stuff you definitely start to pick out. I gotcha. I was just trying to look at a map here and kind of picture those flyways like where they were cutting across and I could see how that would work. I mean, it's not so crazy. Those ones coming from the Great Lakes down to the Carolinas. I mean, it's just a little bit of a angle off. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, comparatively speaking, it's not so much different than, you know, what some of our bluebills do. I mean, they're cutting across the Great Lakes and, you know, either you know cutting across there and like the backside of erie and coming down they're not really always following that traditional flyway down you know the st lawrence down to the finger lakes and then down to our coastal areas and you know the concept's kind of the same you know yeah i got you so 
with it being like that to where they are kind of wintering in your guys' area, how does that work for juvies and adults? Like, can you kind of see the adults go through and then all that's chilling down there is juvies or what? No, I mean, or, well, <laughs> sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, because I guess I really don't know even how the ones that are our flyway work. Like, do they all kind of start out leaving at the same time and then they start straggling from there where the juvies keep staying farther back? Or, I mean, do they yeah, adults I mean, get the jump on it? Yeah, I mean, I think that concept's kind of the same where, you know, we're getting, you know, the adults down here. The juvies are kind of bringing up the rear. Same difference going back up north. You know, it's mostly those adults that are on that weeding edge because obviously, you know, those are the birds that you want breeding. Um, they want to get, you know, those first ones on the nesting grounds are typically going to be the most successful. So they're going to be, you know, right up front and kind of leading the way. Um, and then, you know, later on, it's, you know, getting backed up with more with more juvies. Now, this year, obviously, is kind of an anomaly. I shouldn't say an anomaly. <laughs> Maybe a correction year is more appropriate that we're, you know, we had it happen a few years ago where we just didn't really have any juvies. I would say, um maybe 10 percent of what we harvested were juvies which that's that's not a lot at all um and i mean i see the the same trend happening this year where i mean some of the flocks we're driving around seeing and scouting and hunting i mean there's just virtually no juvies now you know i'd heard that you know they had a bad hatch now is that coupled with this you know avian flu even though you know, we've been hearing grumblings that, you know, Atlantic Flyway is a low risk as far as it goes. I mean, we've definitely seen evidence of it, but not to the not to the severity that, you know, guys I've talked to in Arkansas and the Dakotas have seen where, you know, they're seeing thousands of birds dead in the field. You know, we see a couple, but it's still something out of the norm for us. So staying on the juvies and the adults, what kind of differences do you guys have when you target them or do you make much difference in your setup and game plan? Uh, I mean, the, the game plan doesn't really change per se. It's just, um, you know, when you're dealing with a bunch of adults who, you know, yeah, you figure the average age is anywhere from two to eight. You know, when you look at like, um, like band recovery data for them, you know, those birds have seen hundreds of rigs. They're, they're not as, you know, dumb of a bird as people think they are. So, you're hunting a flock of, you know, 90% adults, you know, it, it certainly makes the hunting a little bit more difficult and having to take more time in your hide, your setup, you know, trying to just kind of, you know, dot your I's, you know, cross your T's. And even then, I mean, they can be super frustrating. You know, they just, they just know sometimes when something's not right. Um, you know, the flip side of that is when you have a great juvie hatch, I mean, you know, those are the first birds typically that are going to kind of, you know, suck down to you and, you know, a lot other birds are going to tend to follow them where you can get a nice rip in a flock. Um, so obviously, you know, we really want a good hatch knowing we're going to have a lot more fresh naive birds, you know, just the same as any other flyway. And, you know, when it doesn't happen, you know, just, it can certainly make the hunting, you know, a lot tougher. And, you know, it's just, that's just part of it. You know, it's out of our control. Yeah. So I wonder if it makes a difference to, I guess you'd be the one to ask since you have hunted, in the central flyway from what you remember i guess what i was going to say was since you know the birds in the central flyway they are getting pounded from arkansas all the way up when they head north and then same thing on the way back down since you since your guys is just migrate to pretty much you guys and they've just got that little clip of uh 
the United States than Canada. Are they getting hit as hard, do you think? Like, are they seeing as many spreads every year? And, like, so would it make the birds in Central a little bit more wary, the adult-wise, compared to over by you guys? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think, without a doubt, I mean, the birds out, you know, and these other flowers get a, a ton more pressure than they do here. One, because, I mean, there's just, you know, an exponentially, you know, higher volume of birds, um, you know, and there's a lot more guys doing that as a result of that. And there's a lot more outfitters out there, whether they're chasing them from Canada down to Arkansas and back up for, you know, the better part of eight, nine months. Um, they're certainly seeing a lot more. They're getting a lot more pressure. You know, you got guys running around, jumping them and, you know, roost shooting them and all that kind of stuff, too. And, yeah, I mean, that's not to say that stuff doesn't happen here, but, but I think it definitely happens on a, a lot smaller scale. One, because, you know, again, our population of graders is a lot smaller. You know, really outside of New York, PA, us in New Jersey, Delaware, and Maryland, um, you know, outside of that, I mean, yeah, they're getting, you know, they're getting hunted further south than us, but Delaware, Maryland, us, New York, PA, that's where they're definitely getting hit. But, you know, especially up in like New York and PA, you know, they're really kind of catching them either on the way down or the way up. Again, as I mentioned, kind of following that snow line in the fall and spring, they're not really here like they are in uh, New Jersey and Maryland and Delaware where they're definitely getting pounded pretty much every day. Okay. So staying in the uh, spread area things, do you guys like to run more permanent spreads? Like you set them up for multiple days? Or are you more of a like run and gun every day we're changing up following it? Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we pretty much are running and gunning somewhere fresh every day. Um, you know, we have some situations, you know, like one of our farms, We'll leave, we'll leave out a permanent rig occasionally during the CO. Just we know we can traffic in and we can shoot a few birds in. Uh, but by and large, like, you know, I think we're just a little bit more aggressive where we want to hunt fresh feeds. You know, we want to kind of stay on their tails. And, you know, whether we're fun hunting or we got clients and you know, we want to give them the best opportunity we can. So really the only way to do that is running and gunning them, you know, pretty much every day. I mean, Hell, I can think back just over the past couple of seasons, you know, a lot of the fields that we have permission for or we lease or whatever, um, it's very uncommon, say, during like our conservation order that we may hit the field, the same field twice. Um, you know, we're just really trying to stay on them. And, you know, obviously, I mean, if they get back into that field during it, yeah, we're going to go there. So is that kind of like you, you guys are seeing once you shoot the field once that they're wanting to stay out? Or is it just more of you don't want to ruin a spot type of deal or it's not going to be as good so you just don't even mess with it? Uh, I mean, just running permanent rigs here, uh, you know, because there's no, you know, you don't look, like you look at it like stay up in like Finger Lakes where, you know, they got a couple of big, you know, refuges and stuff that they winter at. Or, you know, you get out into like, you know, central PA where there's basically one kind of finite refuge that they winter at. You know, you get kind of on the outskirts of that, you know, yeah, I can see, you know, times like that where just having a permanent rig out is going to be effective. And especially if you're doing it, doing it during the spring season, um, when you're going to be catching those migrators, like, yeah, it's, it's going to be effective. But, you know, is it going to be consistent every day? Probably not. You're going to have, you know, five or six days where you go with 15 guys and you shoot one bird. 
And then maybe that, you know, sixth or seventh day, you get 10 guys and they shoot 30 birds or 60 birds or whatever. But, you know, to me, it's just I don't think it gives the same quality hunt that it's going to give taking five people on an axe and just having them actually have the birds show up exactly where you want to be. And don't get me wrong, like, you know, I enjoy trafficking birds. I think there is a, a little bit more of a reward factor there sometimes or you know, we'll we'll hunt an X and you know it's just however the conditions are that you're gonna catch migrants. So you're hunting that X and then you know you're catching migrants either going north or they're coming um, you know, from the north, you know, depending on the time of year. So it's cool catching them like that. Um, but you know it's just something that doesn't really, you know, interest us and kind of going out to the same place and just not really worrying about what's going to happen either way. You're kind of getting your money regardless, <laughs> you know, it's just going to kind of be at yeah. the mercy of whatever the birds do that day. I gotcha. So you guys fall hunt them too? We typically are starting around uh, mid to late December. That's when they really start kind of getting staged up here. Okay. You know, usually I would say, Right around Halloween, maybe that first full moon in November, you'll start hearing them migrating over, again, weather contingent. Um, but you know those birds are going further south than us. You know, But you're just basically kind of either waiting on birds to start kind of backpedaling, you know, you know, kind of back up towards us or more birds are coming down where they're kind of hitting those other birds and kind of backing up. Um, but, you know, like, I mean, this past year, you know, we hunted them right there around Christmas. Last year it was like right around New Year's. Um, and usually once they're here, they're kind of here to stay. And again, th- this year has obviously been an outlier of one, but by and large, that's typically, you know, when we start getting on them. So what kind of differences do you do spread wise or do you at all between fall and spring? No, nah, there's really no difference other than the fact we can use the e-collar and unplug the guns. You know, we're still <laughs> usually putting out as many decoys as we can, or, you know, if we feel like it's just not going to be necessary to say they've been in the field for you know two three days and they haven't eaten it out yet you know we'll just go in save our backs a little bit and just run full bodies or you know again depending on you know what the weather is going to be like it's going to kind of dictate how we hide where we hunt in the field um but yeah i mean <laughs> i would say more often than not you know especially if we got the the guys to do it we're trying to usually empty the trailer and just throw everything at them I gotcha. So on the e-collar thing you just said, what kind of sounds do you guys run or what are your thoughts on sounds? You know, so I, and I, I say this to a lot of people. I mean, the, the e-collar definitely has a time and a place um, and it's fun to hunt with. But, you know, I think I think in my opinion, it's kind of a more of a novelty, especially for people who are coming during the CO to hunt. Because, you know, again, there's just kind of this aura, I guess, about unplugging the gun and you know using the e-cars and it's going to be some huge um beneficial factor in how your hunt winds up um i found that's not always the case you know i would say you know some of our better hunts come when really nobody's hunting for them yet so there's not as much pressure on them if it's sunny windy and cold i mean they gotta eat you know and um a lot of our better hunts tend to come at that time you know the Again, the e-collar works. You know, we we have like greater tracks that we use specifically for this flyway. You know, we're not using some of the other you know kind of uh, pre-made or pre-uploaded ones where you know you start hearing like Rossi's barking in it and stuff like that because 
you know, Rossi's here are very rare to come by. So it's just it's not really going to replicate what the birds here are are doing. You know, there's a lot more like murmuring and just kind of like relaxed birds that we use. You know, it's not just kind of this cacophony of noise like a lot of these other like flyway play track or um, um, uploads that they use, you know, on their MP3 players. It's it's a lot more subtle, I think. And, you know, again, it, it works. They're fun to use, but, you know, they're not something that, you know, like I'm going to put my money more on the conditions than I am this other piece of equipment. So do you guys use hand calls at all then? Uh, we do not know. Okay. You know, it's so, like, like some people it's like, I don't know. Like I know some people who do and that's all well and good, but my kind of philosophy on it, you know, it, it I'm sure helps with some of the smaller flocks. As far as I'm concerned, like if the conditions are right, you know, especially if you got, you know, five, six plus thousand birds, you know, working me out there with some grumbly little, you know, snow goose call, they're not going to hear me one. And two, I don't feel like wasting that kind of lung capacity to even attempt them hearing me. So, you know, more often than not, we're just being quiet and, you know, what's going to work is going to work and what doesn't, doesn't. I gotcha. So, uh not an e-collar guy suppose you uh when you do use it you don't really love when you're laying in bed that night listening to barks and murmurs in your head while you're trying to sleep i can uh i can still i still have memorized some of the loops that we use even now in my head it's pretty horrible oh i know (laughs) i haven't even used it since last march well the bad thing about it too is after a couple days of listening to it you'll be laying in bed and you can hear when the when it loops back over in your head, there'll be like a pause in it. It's like, God, I've, I've listened to that too much now. Yeah. It's almost like, <laughs> I got to imagine comparatively, it's got to be like getting waterboarded sometimes. I mean, there's guys we take and they're like, you know, texting me at eight, nine o'clock that night. And they're like, I still hear it. And I'm like, yeah, imagine doing that for like four or five weeks at a time, brother. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. Those guys that chase them from Arkansas all the way up into Canada, I can't imagine not only the toll takes on your body, but your sanity after listening to those same loops over and over and over. Yeah. All right. So let's roll into, you mentioned pulling the uh, plugs out of the guns. What kind of uh, gun ammo do you like to see people when they're going after these graders? What kind of setup do you like to see them use? Hopefully the cheaper, the better. I mean, I always kind of crack up when I see people rolling up with like heavy metal or boss or, you know, some of these higher end brands, which you got the wallet for it. Good for you. You know, my, my gun shoots, you know, Winchester BB just fine. And that's usually what I buy cases of, you know, that, or, you know, federal speed shocks. Like the way I kind of look at it, you know, it's always a volume game, right? When you're talking about going on a snow goose hunt versus like a gentleman's duck hunt, you know, where, okay, using some nice ammo then, probably warranted but you know where there's days you might be dumping a case or two i don't really want to be shooting three three hundred dollar plus ammunition at these birds just you know three four dollars a shot goes out and you're dumping a gun like that's that gets expensive pretty quick um so yeah i always kind of tell people before they come just whatever the cheapest three inch bb you know bring that you know, you'll get away with twos and ones and stuff like that as well. I mean, you know, by and large, you know, we're trying to, you know, shoot birds decoying 15, 20 yards, you know, out to maybe 40. But, you know, I also tell them, too, like, 
there's some of these no win days like that 40 50 yard shot's going to be the best they give you straight overhead so you know you want something with a little bit more knockdown so you know those days do happen um you know unfortunately here you know compared to like out in the you know other flyways you know we're restricted where we can only have you know um extension that you know you can only have two more shells in the gun so you're limited to seven and again it's one of those things in the grand scheme you know outside of dumping the tube on a bird you know or a flock you know how many once you get to like number five six seven once those birds are out there are you really hitting and you know dumping right there over the rig so a lot of guys just you know unplug their guns they got five good shots you know that's that's all good what i guess what kind of size difference is there in the greater than the regular are they closer to a canada goose size yeah the i mean i guess you know inherently as the name describes i mean the graders are obviously a little bit bigger than the lesters i mean you know talking anatomic i don't have a pound for pound what the difference is but you know i mean the the graders definitely have bigger head bigger bill thicker necks you know a lot bigger wingspan um you know all that kind of sorts of a jazz about them um yeah i think one thing I've noticed, you know, just between, you know, hunting them here and, you know, out, out um, you know, in the other flyways, you know, because of some of the areas, especially around here where they're getting more like um, into some of the soil that's got a, like a, a lot of um, iron in it. A lot of our birds tend to have a lot more of that like rusty look to them, you know, whether it's just on the face and up around the bill. But, you know, even ours will get it like, you know, all the way down their their bellies and stuff. It's It's pretty cool, you know, and. Like, I actually got a bird mounted a couple of years ago because, you know, again, you usually just see it on their face, right? And, I mean, it can get really deep, and it's just really kind of a cool characteristic of them. But I had this one bird that was just, like, orange from the head to tail, and I was like, I got to get this thing mounted. And, you know, it was cool that he was able to save all of that tinge in it and everything. So it turned out to be a really cool bird. Yeah, that's awesome. That'd be really cool. What kind of – uh? hiding do you guys do do you guys do layout blinds or are you guys laying in whites out there uh yeah again like anything else just situational um you know like yesterday when we're out you know we usually just have like backboards we use or you no know, layouts where we can take the tops off of them um you know we'll just lay out in whites and the decoys you know, other times if we have a good edge hide you know we'll use panel blinds um you know things of that nature um but yeah, that's that's kind of it in a nutshell. I mean, you know, we're either, you know, out in the rig or we're kind of trying to use an edge hide if we can. So what kind of, I guess, I know this is very, very, it could change based on many scenarios, but like what kind of spread setup do you guys kind of do? Is it more of like a straight line, big blob, big classic U? And then I guess where do you guys set up in that spread based on? you know the situation yeah so i mean you know we're always trying to like match or replicate what was out there the day before right so you know i think we're always trying to have some sort of rhyme and reason when we kind of put together a game plan of how we're going to run the decoys and i would say largely speaking you know we're kind of you know always making it kind of really thick up around the top of the rig um, and always just kind of parsing it out as we get further downwind start mixing in our full bodies and you know, I mean we may run our full bodies out a hundred yards or you know or maybe even longer sometimes. 
just to make it look really relaxed and natural. Um, you know, if it's if we got a really good wind where we can get away with, you know, hiding further down the rig kind of towards the full bodies, we'll do that. If it's a situation where we don't have, you know, as good of a wind or say maybe we know the wind's going to switch at some point during the day, um, you know, we'll kind of set up the rig based off of that so we can easily kind of uh, move ourselves around. I mean, we like perfect example, we had to do it yesterday. I mean, we didn't really have any wind in the morning. So we ended up kind of facing where I expected the birds to be coming from, knowing like where they roost. We set up that way in the morning. And then once the wind actually picked up, we basically just made a U-turn, laid the other way, you know, with the wind at our backs. But, you know, in that situation, we kind of put ourselves smack dab in the middle of the rig. Um, you know, so that that's kind of how that would roll. And, you know, even with like if we're doing an edge hide, that, you know, we'll typically try to get ourselves more down towards like where the full bodies are at and where it's a lot more open that we know the birds are going to want to be landing and stuff. That way we're not relying on birds kind of crawling up the rig to get up at the top of it where, you know, we have it the thickest where, you know, that's kind of to replicate. You know, that's where kind of the heavy bulk of the birds are feeding. So like you just mentioned coming off the roost, this is a question I was going to ask. The other two, and I completely spaced it. Based, so, like, I've been in situations, well, we have, where the roost and the field that they've been hitting the X are, like, within hundreds of yards of each other. Mm -hmm. Is that something that you even mess with in fear of busting the roost, or how would you set up in that situation? So, just interestingly enough, because, you know, I guess, comparatively speaking to, you know, your experience with it, you know, they're getting on a bunch of those, you know, big like prairie ponds or, you know, whatever kind of, you know, um, situation out there that they're roosting in or reservoirs that they're roosting in. It's not really like a, a thing here for us where, you know, Farmer John's, you know, pond is where they're going to be roosting in, right? You know, I mean, I'm not going to say it doesn't happen by and large. You know, a lot of our birds are either, you know, roosting out on the bay, they're roosting across, you know, in Delaware, um, and they're flying, you know, eight plus miles inland. Um, they're they're covering some ground before they even get to us. So there, it's, there's really never a lot of situations. I mean, we have a couple of spots where they'll, you know, they'll roost, you know, a quarter of a mile away, but, you know, we don't have to really worry about, you know, kind of, you know, messing them up or something in the morning um you know by and large they're they're covering some distance you know and um yeah just not really something we have to worry about here well good i'm really glad i didn't ask those guys about it <laughs> <laughs> so um when you're out scouting what kind of fields or places are you looking for like obviously you're looking for an x but say you got multiple spots and they both, I mean, they all look like they got no good numbers on them. What is like the thing that you're going to use to determine which one to go at? Um, I guess there's kind of two answers to this. Uh, one is hopefully we're going to try to book a second group of hunters to go and we're not both. So there's, there's that, um, you know, if there's say, you know, we have a couple of X's that are in pretty close proximity to one another, we're probably going to go to the one where we're going to be, um, you know, say we know like where they're going to be roosting or something. And one field is closer to the roost. The other is further away. We're going to get on that one closer to basically just try to cut off everything that's going to go up to that other one. 
Um, you know, because that way you're at least going to get a rip at them. And if you don't, you know where they're going to end up. And, you know, we're just going to leave those birds alone and go hunt them the next day or the next, you know, good weather day we got. Um, and again, the, you know, the hive's going to kind of dictate that. The, the weather's going to dictate that. You know, if it's going to be raining the next day and we can't drive into the field, we're going to go to the one that we can at least, you know, lug stuff into, you know, where we don't have to get as far. Um, you know, that's certainly a situation that comes up a bunch, you know, where it's going to be super cold, you know, how easy is it going to, you know, be to get stuff in a bean field versus, you know, a cornfield. Um, but, you know, the one thing too, kind of going off this point, um, usually earlier when we're hunting them, they're getting into corn, you know, because it's not as cold. There's not this need to be on such a, a high calorie diet, such as like soybeans, right? You know, your, your corn's going to be kind of a quick and easy, you know, um, I guess carb for them. Um, just a quick burst of energy and they're good to go. Whereas like they really need that green or they need that wheat when it's really cold out. So, you know, say hypothetically there's birds bouncing in a cornfield one day and we also have them in a bean or a wheat field. We know it's going to be really cold and blown the next day. We're going to go to the green because we know that's what they're going to, you know, probably want. Okay. That's a good answer for that. Because we've run in that situation quite a few times, and that's usually where we go, well, which one's going to be the easiest to get into is the big thing, especially if we got a trailer. What's going to be the best way to get in? And then based on that, like you said, where they're roosting, if there's two roosts and they're close to each other, you know that they're both coming from the same spot. If you can get to that first one, you might be able to draw on some of those ones that were going to the other one. Yeah, I mean, we're, <laughs> we're also lucky, too, where, you know, a lot of the places that, you know, we have access to, you know, through whatever means that may be, a lot of the properties are, you know, largely speaking, adjacent to one another, so... You know, it's it's really nothing where it's like we have to worry about somebody going and muxing with them or, you know, somebody's going to drive by and, you know, stick the gun out the window and, you know, harass them. Like we can really let our birds kind of just get comfortable and not get harassed, which, you know, is great for us just in general because we're kind of managing that pressure. We don't have to worry about somebody going and getting permission from the farmer to go out and jump shoot them. Um, so, you know, we can kind of take care of them a little bit better in that sense where it's like. You know, if they're roosting and, you know, we decide on one field and, you know, we shoot them or even if we don't, they decide they're going to go to another field. There's probably a good chance they're going to end up on one of our other fields where well, at least we don't have to worry about them. Right. And then on top of that, because of the proximity to the other fields, these birds are always bouncing around all day. So it's like you know, some days you just got to be patient. Let them go do their thing. They're eventually going to bounce around and stuff. And, you know, you're going to end up shooting them kind of one way or the other. What kind of weather are you guys looking for, like, for a good day? Sunny, windy, and cold. Yeah. Good. Get those three conditions, and you're usually in for usually in for a pretty good shoot. Okay. So is there any weather where you look outside in the morning and you think, I'm not going to do this today? <laughs> um, well, I just hate humming in the rain in general. So <laughs> if it's raining, the last thing I want to do is be getting muddy in a snow goose field. Um, so yeah, that's one, if it's not going to be like windy, um, I really don't, you know, it just makes the hunting tougher because, you know, you got thousands of eyes looking and nitpicking every little thing, you know, the rig typically if you're using socks looks like shit. Um, you know, but there's situations like that's probably where we're just going to run full bodies to at least have some dimension and some depth and stuff like that. 
Um, but yeah, if I see rainy, no wind, like there's times I gotta just crawl out of bed and go because that's what we gotta do. But you know, we only get so many days to do it. But you know, I'm really looking forward to like the days where you're torturing yourself, you know, drilling in stakes and pounding in stakes because you kind of know what the outcome is probably gonna be. Yeah. Yeah. And like you said, you only got so many days to do it because, I mean, the conservation season might be month or whatever it is, two months long. But, I mean, they're only in the area for so long. So, yeah, I mean, we, you know, by the time we start hunting them, even before it, we have probably six good weeks. And then during the CO, we'll maybe get another two to three. And after that, you know, we start losing a lot of birds and. You know, at that point, we, you know, we may be down to hunting flocks of, you know, five, eight thousand birds. And that's like something that's like, well, that's our option. Like, that's what we got to go hunt. And then, you know, you look into like mid-March and it may be only a couple of thousand birds and you're going to get three or four good rips at them. And that's going to be it. Um, so, you know, it's just kind of part of it. Yeah. So if you could, you know, get a time machine, go back to your younger self, is there... Like anything that we haven't talked about that you would say to yourself that would, you know, make your life easier chasing these things around? Just having a good group of friends, you know, dedicated people that want to put in the work and put in the effort and put in the time. You know, I mean, you know, snow goose hunting is certainly not something I think for casual people. You know, it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of money to do it correctly you know you got to have the right people kind of in your corner that want the same outcome as you and you know not be the ones to just show up and have a good shoot you know you want other people on the ground scouting and you know having your own kind of little underground network i guess where you know you're all kind of helping each other out and you know just wanting kind of again that that same outcome of you know you want everybody to do good and you know, we're fortunate that we have a lot of that in our network of, you know, a lot of kids that are really gung-ho about it and really driven to do it and, you know, put up some really good shoots. And, you know, you wouldn't be able to do that if, you know, you had a couple of people who kind of half-assed wanted to do it or they had the equipment but they didn't want to do the work or, you know, anything like that. It's just it doesn't make it easy for everybody else that wants to actually do it and, you know, I mean, even over time, it's like, you know, you kind of ebb and flow. I mean, I mean, you could say it, I guess, for any type of hunting, you know, you kind of ebb and flow through people that you hunt with. And, you know, some people come, some people go, some people come back around. And, you know, I, I would say that's especially true with, with snow geese, where a lot of people want the reward, but, you know, they don't want to put in the work for it. <laughs> yeah, that's without a doubt. In any types of hunting. Yeah. But, man, I feel like we covered a lot right there. Um, I guess, is there any anything we didn't talk about on snow goose hunting that you can think of that you want to bring up? Well, we shot a band yesterday. That was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, aside from yesterday's hunt being kind of a crapshoot, because... We had a great X, but we didn't have any wind in the morning, so snow geese just standard snow geese bullshit. You know, decided they wanted to land like 400 yards away in the same field as us and just taunt us. We uh, 
Yeah, it was fun. We we had a, we had a fun time regardless. But um, highly, you know, you know, we kind of talked in the last episode about all the dog stuff, and you know, my buddy had his his red with us, and we were kind of joking because like one of the one of the birds had like landed closer like in the in the spread, and he's like, oh, like why don't you send Boone on that bird? And I was like thinking about the one that sailed like 200 yards, and like I want to like I want to really try to stretch him out because he hasn't really got anything stretched out on land since september goose and you know his dog ended up going and grabbing this this one nearby so i was like I'll, I'll go see what he can do about this one and he i mean it was every bit of like a 200 yard retriever and it was pretty cool and i didn't even like think anything about it because i was like you know we're only going to shoot a handful of birds today <laughs> and he brings it back to my buddy and he's like oh it's banded i'm like Get the fuck out of here no it's not like don't like don't start this crap already with me and he's like no look I'm like, son of a bitch, like, that was only, like, literally, like, the second snow goose he had retrieved, <laughs> and freaking banded, I'm like, oh, my God, like, what are the odds, and such a cool retreat, too, for him, you know, for where he's at with everything he's doing. Yeah. That's, we, uh, sorry, not to cut you off, another cool thing that happened, so I was mentioning really no juvies around this year, very few. And one thing that's, like, super rare to come across on the juvies, I don't know if you've ever seen or heard about, like, the toe tags that they can have. So we've only ever shot one of those before that we we know of, I should say. And this juvie was missing its toe tag, but it, plain as day, had the notch in it where it had it. And we were just like, damn it. Like, we were so close to getting another one. This one had just lost his, you know, at some point or whatever. But it was still cool to see that it, you know, it had and, you know, been previously handled. Yeah. All I was going to say was, as kind of shitty it is for everyone, if you do have a younger dog and you got people that are okay with it, if you can bring them along, like if you're hunting a turnover field, getting a younger dog out on that is a great way to start them on retrieves because i mean you got a white bird in a black field they can see it for a long ways so it's really it's really nice for that but yeah it's exactly what my buddy and i were talking about just how nice it was that that you know just that contrast difference where you know i knew just command wise it was probably going to be a little much for him but like once he actually kind of like he was kind of deviating off of where the bird was but once he caught it i mean it was just like he was on yeah. That was pretty cool to see. Yeah, that works really good. Like if you obviously you don't want to go out there with a fresh green dog, but if you have a dog that's getting to the point where you're starting to line out and handle and stuff like that, it can work really good. They're really good. So Yeah. So that was a fun highlight. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. I guess to close it up, do you have any uh great snow goose or crazy snow goose stories, hunting or anything else involved that you can think of? Yeah. Uh I guess a lot of my my good snow goose hunts, you know, just they they kind of culminate, I guess, all of my hunting in a, in a way. Like, you know, I think I mentioned it the last time we talked, you know, how it's like you, know, you look back at so many hunts and it's like they're all good in some respect, right? I remember one of the, like, first times I actually got to go snow goose hunting where I could hunt. I was probably 10 or 11, something like this. And yeah, this was back in the days, like you could actually hunt them out on the base shore, like out in the marsh and stuff. And um, it was kind of a slow day. We had shot a couple of birds and I remember winging one and we were kind of packing up anyway. And I think this is like where it all, I don't want to say it got started, but it's just like a, just a 
funny personal story that I remember, you know, and it's like, you think back that young, like how many things do you remember? Right. And we were with one of my dad's buddies and we're motoring back up this Creek and we see the bird and everything. And my gun was already put away. So my dad gives me his 12 gauge, which like I hadn't even shot yet at the time. You know, here I am like pre puberty Ryan, (laughs) like probably should not be, you know, handling a 12 gauge yet. And I'm trying to like shoot this thing. He's giving me like a shell at a time. And like I'm shooting everywhere around this bird, but the bird. And by like the like 10th or 11th shot, I could tell my dad was getting like so frustrated at me. And he literally like grabs the gun for me and shoots the bird. And it's just like, like that. And I felt like <laughs> such a dumbass. Like I almost like, it was almost like, he's like, you're not my child. Like how did you miss this bird this many times? But I always like, I always like just remember that. It's like one of my like first snow goose kind of experiences aside from you know going before i could hunt and being like what the hell am i doing out here i'm miserably cold and this just sucks like it's cool seeing all these birds but this is not enjoyable and then yeah once we started figuring it out and like i started being like successful on my own and successful with other people i mean you know the it's it's nice when you see all the work pay off and you start having those really good shoots and you know Days you don't think you're going to go shoot any, you know, you next thing you know, you're running back to the house to grab more shells because you ran out and, you know, or you shoot some really old bands or, you know, you shoot these neck collars or these transmitters or all these other things that just, they just stick out or, you know, we've shot a couple of like Ross geese that, you know, they're really uncommon. So, you know, you, you just never know what's going to happen sometimes and, you know, days like you know you're hunting in a blizzard and like blues just stick out it's like you almost feel bad for them and like you know you get guys with you that like you got birds at 10 15 yards and like it's just white out conditions and like why aren't we shooting i'm like just wait for a blue just wait for a like let's just wait for something cool like we're gonna shoot all these other ones but like let's just hang out and wait and just see what happens like there's we're not doing anything wrong like why not just wait a bit and see if we can at least get rewarded a little bit more for our patients you know and i think that's a big thing with snow goose hunting is like just it certainly teaches you a lot of patience and teaches you a lot of dealing with frustration (laughs) and maybe not always in the best ways but you know it i think it certainly humbles and grounds you for sure yeah for sure well uh i guess people wanted to get a hold of you guys you're out there shooting those big white ones how would they uh, book a hunt yeah if they want to do that for snows they want to come for any sort of collector species here i mean we you know we get quite a few people who are looking to knock birds off you know their 41 list um Uh, you can find us one tree outfitters llc on uh, facebook and instagram um those are basically the three best ways, you know, especially through the website, because, you know, we're not huge on social media. We kind of keep people up to date as we can, but we're pretty quiet on there just because just what we choose to do. So usually inquiries through the website is the best way to get in touch with us. Cool. Well, thanks for uh, coming back on and actually having the conversation we were supposed to have last time. Yeah, that was good, man. I appreciate you having me again. Yeah. And I guess if you got uh, updates, you know, end of season or whatever, think of any more information let me know and we'll get you back on and get another one recorded up cool man sounds like a plan have a good night yeah you too bye